This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention, I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. From the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and beaming out across all of space and time, this is Star Talk, where science and pop culture collide. This is Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And today, we have a special edition of Star Talk featuring my conversation with actor, producer, writer, Filmmaker, entrepreneur, Edward Norton. Edward Norton, welcome to Star Talk, dude. Thanks. Thank, thanks for coming this is, on. This is like, this is the only Star Talk I would ever go on. <laughs> yeah, because we're talking about actual stars yeah, in the universe. Yeah, it, it would have a, it would have a different sobriquet, and it'd be like Star Maps or something. Oh, there you go. I don't want to be in that. <laughs> so what we what we like to do with our guest is just get some background. Uh, understanding of what might have been some early uh, science or math influences in your mm-hmm. life, if any. Just curious, just in school, where'd you grow up? Grew up um, in Columbia, Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, between Baltimore and Washington. Baltimore family. Um, Orioles fan? Lifelong yeah, okay. season ticket holder, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so no, I grew up there. From that I went to public school my whole life. Uh-huh. Um, I had many good uh many terrific teachers in our little public school and i uh that's very encouraging by yeah, the way. yeah and i was i was um I, I was ecumenical in my academics and then i liked everything kind of i i hated high school didn't like didn't like pe- the didn't i wasn't popular or so i was very isolated so i like enjoyed school I, I school, <laughs> no school was my like like the, that, that those two learning things go together was, yeah learning yeah. things music and science and history and reading books and going to the theater. Um, fortunately, my parents and my family were really 
intellectual and active. And so I, they were like, uh, I was, I didn't, I didn't like being at school, but I liked what I was learning in school. Mm-hmm. And, um, then, uh, um, I was really lucky and I got, I, I got into Yale, which for me was like being, um, lifted off of a desolate planet and put on earth. Uh, it was like, it was very rich and, um, I, and the, you know, the people were amazing and, um, diverse and intellectually ferocious. So, and when I got there, Carl Sagan was like a hero of mine. And I originally... Carl Sagan was at at Cornell. He was at Cornell, yes. Mm -hmm. But I, but I, you know, the original Cosmos and um, his books with Android were in my grandparents' shelf. I remember going through those books, like fascinated. And I went to Yale and thought that I was going to be an astronomy major. What? Yes. What? I know. Am I just learning this now? Yeah. What? Um, And I actually, the battery of my early classes was overweight um, physics and astronomy. And and inspired by the influences basically of the Carl Sagan enterprise. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's funny the way, when you're young, you laugh at it now, but like I was, you know, I was really interested in Japan too and martial arts. Not from something, but just because of like the James Clavell series Shogun with, you know, Richard Chamberlain and then going and finding the book and reading Clavell's Shogun. It just seemed very exotic to me, you know? And I like I was very drawn to things that seemed exotic. And Carl Sagan's, like those books and that series made it seem extremely, like narratively exotic. And, um, and it, it hooked me. I was really hooked by all that. And so then what happened? Yeah, I know. It all went south. There's an off-ramp there somewhere. It all went south. (laughs) Um, The funny thing is I was doing theater in my life, in my young life. I was very into theater as well. My my mother taught Shakespeare and... So high school plays kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh And I I went to a theater arts school outside of my high school, which was kind of my happy spot. And... Um, but I didn't have, you know, I, I liked make, I wrote little plays and I made little films with my video cam and I, um, but it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't like in me like, that's what I want to do. Cause I didn't have a seer, I didn't have a very developed sense of, of the actuality of doing that. Whereas in a funny way, I felt like, I really did feel like the Sagan, the thing he did made it look like, now that's a, that's an enter that's a thing to do that's like you know and and i really i really did go to school thinking that's what i want to study i didn't know if i wanted to do that but i i that's what i wanted to study um you mean to do it professionally versus yeah i don't i wasn't i didn't have i wasn't like an 18 year old with a directed sense of a career i at all i just was like this seems like cool okay so to learn about you're at yale you're thinking of astronomy physics math has to be in there so then what happened well, I have a couple of memories. So I, I, One I need is to say that in a different way. I, I don't. I didn't mean what to happened? sound yeah. disappointingly. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, so then what, what transpired? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I remember one very funny thing was that one of my freshman year astronomy professors, I believe she was Dutch, was a woman named I want to say Patricia Vader. Okay. But her name was Vader, and As this in is Darth. in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> and she entered the uh, first day of the lecture, uh, you know, class in astronomy, wearing all black, including like a long black sweater and black boots. And as she walked down to this stage, like 
people started to laugh and someone goes, dun, 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 dun. And everyone's like, this is great. She's leaning into it. This is going to be fun. And she got up and gave this look like, what's all this? Like she clearly didn't, wasn't in on the joke at all. Mm. And, and then it was sort of like, oh, this is not going to be a lighthearted um, romp through like ast- through astrophysics. And, um, and it wasn't, I, it was, I, I, I remember thinking it was a bit of a grind. So you didn't, you didn't survive the baptism? No, no, I, I did. But I, what actually happened was I was taking phys- some physics classes and things like that. And, um, and I had a roommate uh, who was n- not from some moneyed family with, uh, you know, alumni at the school but showed no evident like talent for any academics whatsoever, was inebriated a lot of the time, um, came from sort of a Western Pennsylvania public school or whatever, and, uh, and none of us could figure out how he was at Yale or what he was doing there. And um, one day toward the end of, I don't know, the first year or something like that, he was very affable, but he really seemed pretty dysfunctional to me. And um, he was bothering me about like, let's go watch football and drink beer. And I was like, I have work to do. And I, he was like, well, what, what's the problem? And I was showing him, like I had been diligently working on my problem sets all week. And I was Your still- math and physics. Yeah, and, okay. and underneath. And he was like, let me see. And I showed it to him. And he starts laughing at me and proceeds to say, what's the problem here? And then just basically schools me, like takes me through- a week's worth of work, corrects it, fixes it, shows me how easy it really was. And I looked at him like, what the <laughs> F? And he goes, yeah, that's my thing. And I said, what's your thing? I said, I've never once <laughs> seen you out there. And he goes, I'm, I'm in the graduate school. And he, this was, he was 18 and he was taking like, I don't even know what the number on it was, math and physics, basically at a graduate level. And I had this real light bulb moment, like a real epiphany, like a window into... Like this guy has a gift, like a gift that a gift that you don't have that I do not have, and I am not going to catch up with this. And it wasn't a competitive thing; it was more like ah, this. It's this is like a gift, a talent, and I meditated on it a lot in the rest of that year because I was really struggling, and I other things I was excelling at. I they like I leaned into them, and they like carved like butter for me, and uh, I redirected at that mm. point. So this roommate was a pivotal moment for you. Very. Wow. But I stayed, you know, I stayed, um, I stayed lay fascinated. Um, Which is fortunately in my field, it's possible to be because yeah. there's a lot of popular level books. There is, Documentaries. Yeah. Yep. You can just hang on but to But I, it. you know, I would read Feynman and read all, you know, everything that I ever came out in sort of a popular matrix. I've always kept up with and been fascinated by it. And uh, I think I mentioned when I... Um, Literally, like the first film I made, which where I ever made like more money than I needed, which was maybe three or four films in. I think the the first like check I ever ever wrote to any institution for over ten thousand dollars was to the planetarium here to um, fund a astrophysics um, departmental role for like oh. two years or something like that. Oh, excellent. Well, yeah. thank you. There you go. Well, thank I don't, you. And I don't even, I don't, I came in, I talked, it was before the renovation. Uh-huh. Uh, well before, because I would say this was in 97 or 98. Okay, all right. And um, 
um, that was sort of my like nod to my well, well thank my past you. Interest. Thank you. Yeah, because that that those early monies were tap roots for a lot of what yeah. would come here. Because we ultimately created a brand new department of astrophysics yep. and hired faculty, I know. and I know. And, and so, my friend Jonathan Rose and his family were. Jonathan very Rose is the Rose family. I am the Frederick P. Rose director of the Hayden Planetarium. I know it. His his dad. Basically. His dad. Yeah. That's his and dad. Jonathan is one of as is and has been one of my friends and mentors for many years. He's been very active in city planning, uh, city planning, sustainability. And, and there's another Rose brother who's also active in that. Yes, but and, Jonathan is one of the great uh, thinkers and doers in what I would call progressive urban planning applications of ideas of sustainability. Fabulously wealthy, but he cares about people. He cares about the full functionality of a city. And interestingly, it sort of takes it around to the subject of my film, but... Um, uh, you know, you don't have to, I can take you to no, your film. No, but my grandfather was sort of a mentor I can of take his. you to your film. Yeah, okay, you take me to I your film. I can take you to your film. That reminds me of your film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, a film that you wrote, directed, stars in uh, Motherless Brooklyn, mm -hmm. which... Uh, I didn't know anything about until I uh, saw a screening of it. And I'm a native New Yorker, and it's deep in yeah. the the urban conflicts of planning and design and housing and 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 construction. What what a journey into yeah. that it was. So so did your sensitivity, your friendship with Jonathan Rose, did this give you some awareness of the book from which that's derived? No. Um well, and actually, interesting. I know Jonathan because my grandfather. Well, was, it's Jonathan Latham, the author. Yes. No, I'm sorry. I know Jonathan Rose, Rose. because uh -huh. he, my grandfather, was a, sort of a mentor and inspiration to him. My grandfather was a very famous urban planner, progressive urban okay. planner and thinker named Jim Rouse. Um, and Jonathan, uh, when I when I first moved to New York, I worked for him in affordable housing development in New York. Um, and my first exposure to New York was going around and interviewing people who had been homeless and gotten stabilized Man. through um, affordable housing. And that's what opened up this interest in all this stuff. But but lest it sound like a documentary, my, my real, what drew me into it was uh, the book. It, the book is Jonathan Lethem's late 90s novel about a Tourette detective with, with a, Tourette syndrome. Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder who has to solve the murder of his boss and only friend, basically. And it's this great character. It's like... So it, you read the book and resonated with the character. Yes, but there was nothing in it about New York in the 50s. It's, oh. it's a contemporary book about mm -hmm. a guy who has this affliction of Tourette's, or condition, I should say, but, but who has many gifts within... He has a photographic memory and an ability to puzzle out, you know, complex things. Um, but it's... Jonathan's book, which is beloved, is it's really a character study. It's a character study of this mind. This, you, you're inside his head, and the plot um, is is Byzantine and and sort of a frame for this character. But when I became interested in adapting it, I said to Jonathan that to the I, author, yeah, John, yeah, sorry, Jonathan Lethem. He he's from Brooklyn, born and raised, and I said, look, you know if. This is a this is the greatest character and the greatest like interior mental landscape and but the a film a film is a is a tableau it's a bigger tableau and I I knew Jonathan loved noir films and I sort of proposed to him I said this is a little radical but what if we take the core of this book this guy with this condition 
but we set it in a moment when if we open it up into New York's social history instead of sort of dispense with the plot of the book and let it be, let this Tourette detective take us into a, a, a more Chinatown scale canvas of, of what... Chinatown is in the film. Yeah, Chinatown, the film, like yes. what, which I love as a film because it, it's a great atmospheric, sensual. It's very atmospheric. Film. Right. You're in. You're in. You're in the streets yeah. with them. Yeah, and there. it's 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 about the crimes underneath the veneer of L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about it's about what's the shadow narrative under a place that has a sunny American narrative, literally. But I think that. But but as a, as an actor, you read this you read this character and said. I want to play this character yes. with Tourette syndrome, yes, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, with these, you just said this is me. Well, I thought this is a great challenge. This is hard. Okay, um, you know, it's like it's like you know maybe in we do things because they're hard. Not well, because think they're about easy. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, I think in in your field, what is any what draws anybody if not the things that are hard? Of right? course. Um, hard to you figure step out. Right up to the plate. Yeah, you that. say, "Ooh, l- let let me get into that because if you cracked that, wouldn't that be very satisfying?" Right. So, t- t- did you have to? St- did you speak with Tourette's syndrome experts? How did you prepare yeah, for this? Yeah, well, role? there's it, there's not. Uh, That's a cliche question. But, no, no, but, but but you know, it's it's a the it's mind a, is a is a crazy place. It is. It's well documented. Oliver Sacks wrote about Tourette's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, the late Oliver Sacks. Yes. A friend of Star Talks, too. He's been on a couple of times. Yeah, an ama- amazing yeah. clinician and writer. Um, uh, there's a, at least two very good documentaries about it in which you, the condition in which you get to meet many people and see the the broad spectrum and diversity. Of how it of manifests. How it manifests yeah. in people because mm-hmm. in no two people is it the same. It's how, how often does it come with obsessive compulsive disorder? It's an overlay that's not uncommon but not at all ubiquitous. It's, and how um, often does it come with the this sort of uh, very sharp memory which you aptly portrayed in the film? That um, That is, a, I met people who said that the Compul- their word compulsion made them very, very uh, have very excellent memory for things that people had said. Um, because it, it, not to stretch an analogy, mm-hmm. but your character in the film is very concerned about detail, remembers detail, but also wants things to make sense. Yes, as, as, he, puzzle sa- pieces, as he says, it's, multiple times you reference puzzles, and he says puzzles, and he says that an unfinished puzzle is like glass in the brain. Pieces that he has not yet resolved into making sense to him feel like glass in the brain, and um, and I that I related to that a lot. I I I relate to that even on a a story level. Even when I was working on trying to write the script and make it all make sense, once you were at the end of it, that that you know, I that's I, what any good scientist yeah. attempts to do with nature. You get a bit, a bit, a piece over here, and another bit over there. You don't know if they're connectable at all. Right? Maybe they are connectable, but you need other pieces between them to know that they're part of the same puzzle. Yeah, and you know what's really funny is literally it's Tuesday, Sunday. This Sunday night, I was in Palo Alto. I, I presented one of the breakthrough prizes for science. Oh, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's this new thing that's very, some of very the, uh, high, uh, uh, lucrative. Prize. Yes, yeah. Yes. It's, I think it's one of the largest cash prizes for scientific achievement mm-hmm. in science and math in uh, the world. Bigger than the Nobel, yes. $3 million. Yes. Um, so it's like 
three times bigger than the Nobel, right? Yeah, Nobel's like one and a half, yeah. Oh, is it now? Yeah, so uh, so anyway, uh, very substantial. They've invested wisely over the years. <laughs> yes, exactly. But they also, you know... you know, Who did um, you give it to? Who did you present? So that's what's interesting. The the uh, I, the person I awarded to is named Jeffrey Friedman. He's a, a, doc, a clinical doctor. He created a drug called leptin that basically... Um, it, it, he figured out what the gene is that that con- controls the body's digestion of fat. Um, and in figuring out the gene, they were able to come up with um, a thing. And so people, people whose bodies essentially were making them morbidly obese, no matter what they ate, literally he, he and, and having all kinds of terrible- um, oh, Side effects. Heart and side effects. It, he, he literally created a cure. That doesn't mean everyone who's overweight takes this pill and his things. But but some people who had a genetic disorder that was really substantial, he he discovered the gene that controls the regulation of of fat in the body, and and in the little film they had about him, to your exact point, he had worked on this for a long time, and I, and he he describes the moment that he looked at the slide that he knew revealed what the gene was, and it's it people in the room had tears in their eyes like because mm. he said he knew at the moment that he looked at it that it had all fallen into place. He knew what he was looking at and he knew that in short order there were going to be people whose lives were going to be saved. Transformed. Trans- yeah. sa- literally saved, saved who, yeah. were, who were on death's door. Mm-hmm. And then they brought this woman out who is built like an athlete who was dying and, and things and was saved by the drug. It was, it was unbelievable. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like it was just unbelievable. It was like, and the, everything about that whole evening I was really liking because they, essentially they've got a lot of Hollywood people coming up and saying, hey, stop paying attention so much to what, this is like great yeah. work. And it, it, it's needed. We, 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 need, we need the elevation of, of the heroism of those kinds of careers, you know? Well, thank you for participating. Yeah, it was, you, it was great. To it bring was, that, to bring sort of uh, actor celebrity uh, uh, spotlight to yeah. the, the rest of this is part of that part of that that's that visibility right. that these kinds of events need and I think require. Yeah, I think it's, it's sustained. The funny thing is, is I think I worked. I was on President Obama's committee for the Arts and Humanities, right? So we we did a lot of work on. Um, you've been on you've been on the UN too. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to yeah. that in a minute. Wait, okay. But I, we 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 did a lot of work on on looking at actual the actual measurable effect of arts education programming on overall educational efficacy performance rates and stuff and it's really it's not even fuzzy it's like it's like where arts education is a component kids do better at all stem at everything things everything and our argument was it should be called steam because you should have arts in there and um that arts and and that makes you know it makes complete sense to me having an interest in both that that visual arts and think about visual arts and their role in astronomy Think about like, think about the importance of being able to understand narrative, to talk about things in ways that open it up for people. If you if you don't have art, I I think like, uh, sci- you know, science without a uh, some of the dimensions of the arts in them are much more. Uh, I don't even want to say boring. They're less activated for people. You know, it's a mean? good word, activated. Yeah, right, right. You need the active, the activation provided by. The imagination that art requires of you. Yes. yes. Yeah. And training the imagination. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, this, you know, it's not like Einstein wasn't saying this all the time. It's like you have to have 
artistic imagination to to do good science. That's his quote, ways. right? Imagination is more important than knowledge. Right. I think is an Einsteinian yeah. quote, which is right up that alley. Yeah. Yeah. Edward, hold that thought. We got to take a break. When we come back, more of my interview with Edward Norton. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Do you want to set up your child for success? Of course you do. Maybe you want to save money on private tutoring, or maybe it's just out of your budget altogether. Is this a big school year for your child? Like maybe they're starting kindergarten, middle school, or high school, or some other milestone. Maybe your family moved and they're starting at a new school. Is your child ahead? Not getting challenged enough in class? Well, we love that little smarty, but we want them to be engaged. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Star Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Star Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops Driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. 
PXG Black Ops Driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops Drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. PXG.com slash StarTalk, code StarTalk. Bringing space and science down to earth. You're listening to StarTalk. We're back. So, Edward, so did you think about your brain more, having played this role and studied the symptoms of uh, uh, Tourette's? Yes. I, um, yes. And I think, I don't know if you, I could, I, I imagine many people could relate to this, but I, I think that it's, you know, we see, we see it in many forms of disorder or condition or whatever you want to call it that that the de- the different the difference between someone who presents as let's call it stable and someone who's dealing with an instability can be a matter of like a gene or a few neurons or you know a little bit of a chemical imbalance and that idea that we you know so Tourette's to me as an actor one of the things that you know, there's a there's something called a Meisner exercise. There was a famous teacher named Sanford Meisner, Sandy Meisner, who who would have actors do take a sentence and say it over and over and over again with emphasis, like, um, you know, I don't want you to do that. It's like, I don't want you to do that. Like, I don't want you to do that. Like he he showed how much you can change intention just by by playing with emphasis on and how there's almost limitless adaptability of intention that you can express. This is what the actor brings language. to a script. Right, a script exactly. Doesn't, doesn't do that. No, and you have yeah. to you have to you have to understand the intention will change the emphasis of the way you use words, right? But it's almost like it becomes almost like an incantation when you do Meisner exercises, right? And to me, Tourette's if you're if you if you are someone who compulsively mimics other people's voices or which I always did as a kid, or if you get obsessed with wordplay, the rhythm of words or the intention that's in different things, then Tourette's, it looks like you're like looking across a gulf that's like only a foot wide because you're saying to yourself, as an actor, I've walked down the street in New York muttering to myself many times, probably looking like, you know, in the early 90s, it was like, that kid looks like he's probably schizophrenic. Now they're like, oh, it's Edward. He's probably rehearsing something. You know what I mean? It's, it's like New York is very tolerant in a way of people muttering to themselves. But I think that you, 
the idea of Tourette's that's in the book, which is a voice in the head that you're doing battle with, a part of your brain that is trying to suppress another part of the brain from doing something unrestrained or anarchic. Everybody's having that conversation all the time. It's just a matter of whether it spills out of is your head. Is it literal? Yeah, is it made vocal? You know, um, and I think the idea, the idea of being in battle with your own head is something like, I'm not sure that there's anybody who can't relate to that, mm. you know? And so I think, um, I like that idea, that, like that he as a character with Tourette's, it's exotic because it's so extreme in him, but it's not actually unrelatable. It's like you it's easy to get fairly instant empathy in the beginning of the film when he tells you, I have something wrong with my head. Right. And this is why, this is what it does. There's a lot about it that almost right away you're going, I, I can sympathize with that. You know what got my empathy? And I don't know if it was intended to hit the audience as much as it hit me. But it's when your character says, um, you know, if I if I get high or if I uh, do these other things, yeah, um, it it diminishes the effect. But then, my thoughts start getting fuzzy. Fuzzy, yeah. And up until then, we are respecting you and we're valuing you because you have such a sharp brain. Mm -hmm. You remember things. And now I'm saying, oh my gosh! In order for him to not have the manifest manifested symptoms, now he's going to be fuzzy brain. Right. Now he can't be what he, what we value in him when he's fully expressing right. the affliction. And so I, to me, I, I felt that because my brain matters to me. Yeah. I want to be sharp. Yeah. I want to remember things. And also, I mean, when you think about stories, I there's many, there's, there's, a, there's actually, I think, a genre of films that doesn't get tagged as a genre, but if you, Motherless Brooklyn, uh, Forrest Gump, Rain Man, but in the sense of being underdog characters who carry us through a story and we're rooting for them because of their affliction, not despite their affliction, right? right. But I, I cite a lot um, this, the film about John Nash, right? Because oh, yeah, yeah, Beautiful be, Mind. Because he, he I, if, I'm, if I remember the book right oh, so John, and not so the film, Nash he didn't want to won the be, Nobel Prize for, right. in economics. He's a mathematician. The, yeah, yeah, he was a mathematician at Princeton University right. at the time, yeah. Who had... Probably schizophrenia, mm -hmm. most likely, right? Um, but but if I'm not mistaken, if I remember right, in the book, there was a lot they left out of the movie. But he, he tried different drug paradigms, but basically went through that. Like it it ruined his capacity to think. Right. Um, right. And you know, this is a great dilemma. It's a moral dilemma. Yeah. I saw a lecture by Oliver Sacks where he talked about his own neurological peculiarities, and I said. Uh, Oliver, if you, if we found a cure to to one of your afflictions, I forgot which one we were talking about in the moment, and we can go back and correct that in your childhood, would you do that right. and then relive your life? And he said, no, he wouldn't, because the affliction was the foundation of who he became as an adult. It's why he got interested in neuroscience right. in the first place. Right. So you, if you go around and start snipping and nipping and tucking yeah. genes to get rid of a symptom yeah. when that symptom may be fundamental to the rest of who and what that person is. That's a scary territory to yeah. be on. Yeah. Um, 
uh, of course. Can like, you be on an ethics panel going forward? <laughs> the deeper we get, I, I will recommend like, you, like CRISPR and stuff like that. It, it becomes like this is becoming like not futuristically relevant. It's right. becoming very relevant right, right. now. CRISPR, I always forget the acronym, but it's where you edit genes basically at home. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, and and just the idea that you actually can do gene editing that is transferable, that that is inheritable, permanent, and yeah. inheritable. Um, yeah. And the idea of sort of designer babies and all that becomes, but but what if you don't know? What the salutary effects of a thing are, um, and yeah, I th what happens if you if you design a baby that has no ailments right. of any kind, and maybe our life efforts to overcome our physical mental challenges is the very foundation of the character that we uh, end up yeah. carving as adults. And without it, what what do you become? I mean, did you know Stephen Hawking? Uh, yes, we met. In fact, one of his last interviews was on Star Talk. Wow. Well, did he? I wonder. I I don't know. Um, I mean, we weren't beer drinking buddies. Yeah, but no, we, no. We met several times. I wonder. Had dinner with I him. always wondered if if um, one thing I never particularly gleaned out of reading his stuff was whether he specifically ever said that that his condition of you know the constraints that were on him because I obviously he did very significant work before his correct so that's why I don't think yeah, that, yeah, so that argument would, it doesn't really hold well, up it wouldn't hold before but he I was think, afflicted he was already brilliant right he was manifested unimpeachably good at what he was doing right so yeah yeah but um but I think I think that the thing that I tried to inject in the film there's a character played by Michael K Williams who is a trumpet player, a star trumpet player in a jazz band, and yeah, jazz was quite prevalent in the film. Yeah, there's a lot written about the jazz, jazz notes in the mind, and yeah, did, did you study any of that before you? Yeah, I, I, I was. You into, went there? Yeah, yeah, I was into that music, and um, I think if there's any music that's teoretic in its expression, it's like bop jazz. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's very it taking melodies, deconstructing them, looping them, trying them out multiple times different refrains it's all and different 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 bits of jazz performance affected your characters yeah. the manifestation of the Tourette's well, that was well, fa a fascinating scene they open up they 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 allow him a moment where he's not trying to suppress it where he can kind of find like um a, a resonance a, a alignment and play with it uh -huh. um and not feel like anybody's looking at him um mm -hmm. because it, it, like the other character says, uh, "You can't really disturb the peace in a in a small club with a hot band." You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Um, <laughs> and I think that, but I think that the ca the conversation they end up having, where the trumpet player says, "Like, I, you've, your head is like mine. You're you're twisting things over and boiling around." And mm -hmm. some people call it a gift, but it's a brain affliction, right? And Just the same. He's talking about music, and he said, but, "At least he has a trumpet to blow it through." Exactly. Yes. Like my character sort of envies that he's got. That the trumpet player has a, a mode to put it in that makes it productive, which he doesn't feel that he has. And I think, mm -hmm. I do think, I mean, I think, you know, I feel lucky all the time that I've got like an outlet for my compulsions, you know, that's healthy. Because I'm sure lots of people who just don't get introduced to, they don't get shown a vector down which they can apply the, the like, you know the high speed the the you know if you have a brain that's working in a very high gear but you don't have an outlet for it it can take you in all kinds of addictions and all kinds of other you know terrible places um so i think it's like when 
when people so, talk. So you're saying addiction is just a, a, a misdirected compulsion. I'm not saying that generally, no, no, not but to I'm saying, but I'm saying way, but people. If you think about thought. people, when we talk about like why do kids, why do we want to cultivate? Like, is it, think about how many kids, um, you know, have hyperactive minds and stressful situations and the the you know the pleasure and relaxation they can get from being given a framework into which to put their their mm-hmm. their thinking i mean if you that happened to me in 6th grade yeah i was mostly disruptive in school not in an evil way just i had this social energy that was uncontained and the teacher saw that all my book reports were on the universe this is in 6th grade they said wow. here here are classes you can take at the Hayden Planetarium. Oh my <laughs> so, so midweek, I'd get on a bus and come all the way down into, yeah. into Manhattan and take advanced classes in, in astronomy and physics and math. And then I was calm in class. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the teacher figured it out. Yeah, cause, yeah. partly because you were looking at the other like sixth graders going, you fools, you have no idea what's going on around you. <laughs> Um, no. It's like sort of the Woody Allen thing of like it's all expanding. Yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah. The, the, in fact, that conversation was in Brooklyn. Yeah, in the movie. Um, uh, you know, how I could like you be calm when the whole universe is expanding? Yeah, it's expanding. Right. And the grand, the mother says, "You know, what is that? Your business. You are here in Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn is not expanding, yeah. right? So you you have other interests. I noticed investments in a data company. What is that about? No, uh, that. Not an investor. I started that company. Oh, come on. Yeah, no, no, it's my company. Excuse me, your company. <laughs> yeah, it's we we do a data company. What is what's going on there? We, we this gives you serious street geek cred. Just so you know, if you our, whatever you already had, it adds to it. Yeah, our company we do we we do very sophisticated kinds of um, machine learning uh, applications to media. Data. We 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 create original data signal around whether things like television advertising is actually driving people to take actions that correlate with buying things. Wow! So companies buy your Put it this consultation way. services. We we yeah we're like uh, Nielsen. Yeah, wow. but Niel but Nielsen Nielsen is like Nielsen is like. Uh, uh, a stone age axe and we are, we are like a gamma knife uh, we really are <laughs> okay it's just are you watching it or are you not yeah. right that's what that's the nielsen range well no not yet or notionally can we come up with like a proxy can we come up with a credible proxy for how many people might be watching this mm-hmm. which is not in the world we're in that's not such a valuable insight anymore mm. um especially when there are actions that people take lined up within seconds of having seen a thing that have a pretty high grade like relationship to whether they're intending to do something. Okay, so you're just acting on the side. <laughs> no, the it's side. uh no, I'm not. I've spent I've spent I think I'll add, I ping pong. I star pong. direct and write a movie just on the side. No, I, I go back and forth. Um I could I This is good. Yeah, my film my film has taken up the last two years of my life. Like I saw something saying, oh, he hardly does movies anymore. I was like, I just spent the last two years <laughs> solidly writing and directing and acting in a film. How am I not in the movie business anymore? Because you like need saying, three movies a year and the summer blockbuster. It's like Orson, Kane, Orson Welles puts out Citizen Kane and they say, oh, he's a dilettante. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's like my 40th film. <laughs> I've, got my, I've got my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Like, you there can't you take go. it away from me. You got it. Um, so what's this about United Nations Goodwill Ambassador? 
by the way, the idea that there are any goodwill ambassadors at all is just a great yes, concept. It's a, <laughs> and, but you've got, you're the goodwill ambassador for biodiversity? Yes. Where did that come in? Mm, well, my dad is a career conservation uh, um, litigator and organization builder. And we kind of, my brother, sister, and I grew up in the, in the conservation, environmental sustainability uh, trade. Man. Okay. Um, and I, I've been involved in... So you got the interest and the pedigree to be exactly that. I've been I've been involved in uh, a lot of work on uh, community-based conservation um, and sustainable economic development, and mm -hmm. um, they needed a bio. They biodiversity is a uh, biodiversity is a very um, it's it's poorly understood. I think that we're moving. You know what they should call it? Bio-interdependence. Yeah, well, this is Edwin O. Wilson, right? Yeah. Consilience, yeah. Mm -hmm. that idea that mm -hmm. of... I think that he does... He's done in that field, I think, what you've done with astrophysics and cosmology. He he um, He's helped people understand that interdependence. But the problem is, like, I think in our modern... in let's call it in the last century between when Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot kind of essentially started and John Muir, that's the, that's the, that's the fountainhead of the American conservation movement, right? Mm -hmm. It went through all these phases of sort of like preservationist moves because of the spiritual, the intrinsic spiritual value of wild places and nature. And we've definitely gone through this like 70s, 80s version of like the panda, the elephant, like these iconic... You know, fauna, and it's saying we need to save bear. these animals yeah. because, not because, not so reductive that they're cute, but because they're important, they're iconic, right? And the problem is, is that bio, biodiversity. Well, we tend to want to save fuzzy animals. Yeah, macro fauna, not. I think, and we don't realize that, like, 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 with ten trillion dollars, we couldn't replace what bees and butterflies do to our economy, right? Mm -hmm. We cannot manufacture, we cannot re replicate what beehives do in our agriculture. have you economy. seen the series Dark Mirror? Yeah. Uh, on, on Netflix? So, uh, Black Mirror. Black Mirror, yeah. yeah. One of the episodes, they have artificial bees. Yeah. The, they run yeah. out of bees. They just yeah. made, made bee robots. <laughs> yeah, and that's not happening anytime <laughs> no, soon. No one should kid themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, that, and, and yet, you know, we're having this huge collapse of pollinator um, mm -hmm. diversity and all of it. And the, the ramifications, the idea that we, you know, we have to understand biodiversity within our economic framework, we have to realize that like fish, fisheries are collapsing globally and the ramifications of this are are almost unquantifiable. So it's not just know? animals, but plant diversity too, yeah. the corals and all the rest yep. of that. So the fact so, that you have this this sort of uh, a genetic lineage yeah. of, of biology, biodiversity and conservation, and you have the luminosity being an actor, that's, I guess, the ideal combination well, to that's be an a ambassador. Well, yeah, it needs a narrative, too. Because you, right? and the narrative, which you uh, you have training in constructing, because I'm just trying to think, who makes a good ambassador? You got to be able to answer somebody's question about mm -hmm. this. You can't just be a pretty face. Yeah, you got yeah, to no, have some that, teeth that be behind the, the... Stage accessories is not, um, <laughs> doesn't persuade anybody. Right. By the way, I think, you know, no joke, I think what Jim Cameron did with Avatar is to me, when people say like, well, what's the role of... Jim has all the money in the world. He doesn't need to make more Avatar films. He is making more Avatar yeah, films. three more coming out, right? Specifically, specifically because his conviction is that we need 
a, myth, a mythology. Young people need to get invested in a mythology that puts alignment with natural systems in a heroic, you know, presentation and extractive, non-sustainable villainy into a in villainous construct. And Avatar's the most popular, it's the most seen piece of filmed entertainment ever made. And it has the central emotional event is a tree falling, you yeah, know? Yeah. I mean, this is very significant. Like, you, it's like, that's how you build cultural values. It really is. You, you get a generation of kids feeling like, this is awful. I don't want to be like a part of that uh, destructiveness, you know? And they get it from early on. Yeah. yeah. So that means really you should be ambassador for many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I need to be an ambassador uh, to sleep uh, for the next few months and then I'll consider my other ambassadorships. We got to take a break. When we come back, more of my interview with writer, producer, director, actor, Edward Norton. Over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hey, we'd like to give a Patreon shout-out to the following Patreon patrons. John Gallagher and Ausport Sigurvinsen. Nice Icelandic name there. Hey, if you'd like to get your very own shout-out, go to patreon.com slash Radio and support us. The future of space and the secrets of our planet revealed. This is Talk.
So, Edward Norton. Well, just congratulations on uh, two years, the movie. It, it's, Thanks. It's great. And I was particularly attached to it because of how embedded it is in New York City. I'm hoping yeah. that it would have an appeal to other municipalities. <laughs> uh, New York is, was a complicated place. A it very, was, yeah. There's some good historical... Um, accurate referencing to yeah. the value of Central Park in Manhattan. Who was there before? There were squatters and there yeah. were farms. And there's still a, a, re, a region of grass called Sheep's Meadow. Sheep's Meadow, like, Where yeah. did that name come from? You yeah. know, you, you can ask yourself. And, I, and So I, I was delighted to see that bit of sort of um, a history kissing, yeah. you know, uh, along the timeline. Weave. You want to weave, weave interesting tendrils through... Of a, reality, yeah. of real history yeah. through it. Because I think... Um, Look, first and foremost, to me, the challenge is make a film that's like the films I love, like like L.A. Confidential or Chinatown. First and foremost, you got to like work that hypnosis of great photography and a sense, you know, music and a mm -hmm. sense that you've gone through the frame and into a big world, a big romantic, sensual experience of another time and interesting characters and characters who like we've been saying you can root for right um and i and i think you you first and foremost have to create sort of movie magic and and give people the experience that we all go to the movies for like the godfather or out of africa or la confidential or any of these types of films that transport us you know but once you've done that i think layering in layering in enough that when people come out of it they, they, at the very least, are saying, wow, did that really happen? Is that, wait, how much of that is true? Is that based in truth? So that, that like we were talking Curiosity about activating, yeah, activating yeah. people into a sense of like, is that, was there actually a person in New York who was an authoritarian Named Moses. power yeah. boss like that? You know <laughs> like what I mean? Robert that, Moses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's, that, that's sort of the, hopefully the second level that you can, mm -hmm. Um, achieve, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Edward, um, what I'd like to do for our Star Talk guests is it's not often, uh, you can run the numbers on this, that you are ever in the same room with an astrophysicist. So, I want you to take this moment to ask me any question you may have been harboring your entire life about the universe. I have many. That's the problem. Um, since there's a lot um, in, in the popular press recently about the first photograph of a black hole. Mm -hmm. I think, and Hawking talks about this, This in the thesis of wormholes or this idea that black holes with their super density are bending space-time so much that they could make parts of it touch with each other or something like that. In serious thought, is there is there any, is there real serious thought around the idea that there's conductivity dimensionally through black holes? So let me answer what I think that question was. Yeah. All right. If you look at the Einstein's general theory of relativity, which gives us our understanding of black hole physics, and you follow that through, okay, first it breaks down at the singularity. Right. So we, we need some other theories there, and that's why we have string theorists. But... If you don't hit the singularity, you just sort of move through the black hole. Einstein's relativity prescribes that an entire other space-time emerges on the other side of the black right. hole. And you leave the one behind you once you came. And so, would you talk about 
dimensions. You talk about what what does the black hole do? To, right. So there is the likelihood that a whole other universe pops out on the other side of a black hole, contained within the black hole, but dimensionally, right. it's a, it's an entire right. other universe. And but it's we don't know how to test that. Right. <laughs> you want to be the the guy who goes in and comes out no. and tries to tell us? No, of course. Right. Um, so it right now it's it's a fascinating hypothesis. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's not a function of thinking of space-time fabric of being almost like bent around to be in, just like in Madeline Langle's old like pop sci-fi things about the Tesseract, right? The idea mm -hmm. that you're actually going from one place to another oh, yeah, so it, within the same continuum. Yeah, that would be like a wormhole to get right. from one part of the universe to the other efficiently. Right. Yeah. So it's not clear that it's a wormhole. Right. Because we don't see other places in the universe that could be the exit for that. Right. We just don't see that. Right. And so uh, it's, so it's not clear whether we can exploit it in that way anytime soon. Okay, I have a much more practical one. Mm -hmm. um, in the work that's being done to look at, um, you know, like viable exoplanets and stuff mm -hmm. like that, I understand kind of, you know, radio astronomy and stuff like that. But when they talk about the signature, you know, the atmospheric signature of life, etc., what are we actually looking at? What are we looking at that we have the capacity to be so granular that at these distances and everything, when what is literally the atmospheric signature and how are we measuring it? Great question. So this is a new cottage industry in the field, and it's it's the search for biomarkers. Right. And these this is evidence in the atmosphere of a planet that could indicate that the surface of that planet has active life while you're observing it. You can't see the surface of the planet. It's too small. It's too dim. Right. But what you can do is if the planet passes in front of the host star, light from the host star moves through the atmosphere, comes out the other side en route to you, the observer, and the act of passing through the atmosphere gives the atmosphere a chance to wreak havoc on the yes. spectrum of that star. And the component, yes, you, in the, yeah, the component yes, parts of the atmosphere, yes, differentiated oh, that much. Oh my really. gosh, you know. So what, an atmosphere without oxygen is differentiable. You, you will from see the oxygen signature in the amazing. atmosphere of in the spectrum of the star when the planet is passing in front of it, and it wouldn't otherwise be there when the planet is not passing in front of it. So, so and the, is oxygen even the primary signature? Oxygen of, is unstable. We have oxygen. If you got rid of all life on Earth, the oxygen would slowly disappear. Right, right, right. So something has to keep churning it out, like our plant, our plant life. There, there's a whole portfolio of unstable molecules, which if you find them in right. an atmosphere, something is something's active. Generating something's it. generating it. And so you can look at the kinds of things that make that that life does. Right. And and it be oxygen or carbon uh, or or, or, or uh, uh, methane is right. another example. Right. Methane uh, termites give off methane. Right. So do cows through their flatulence. Right. If you find methane, there are other ways you can make it. But if you find it, it's tantalizing and it makes you look more closely. And so, what is the instrument that's got that level of it's granular ability to look at the light spectrum and see the distortions of specifically? Those elemental very powerful presence. telescopes with very highly resolved spectrographs. Spectrographs. Okay, the, that's the, what's that's going on here. You split up the wow. light into its component colors, and when you do that, 
you see the signatures of elements, molecules, depending on what it is that the light passes. And we through. have not been able to do that until we put telescopes outside our own atmosphere. Uh, the telescope outside the atmosphere are best for that. Yeah. But if you get a really honkering telescope on Earth, there are ways to correct for the atmosphere where wow. you can make some headway on that. But it must be, I mean, I'm saying it's this isn't an argument for having telescopes outside the oh, atmosphere. Oh, yeah, yeah, or on the yeah. far side of the moon. Right. Yeah, well, great question, dude. Are we putting one on the far side of the moon? Uh, so China landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon yeah. for the first time. So there are more players in this right now. But Has the there problem been is, talk about a, yes, a telescope because it's on dark, the dark side, and right? it, it, it's not always dark there, but it's it's shielded from Earth's right. contamination. And but you need a way to communicate around the the bend of the moon. Right. So you need like you need satellites, the, the satellites or transmitters yeah. along the edges, this sort of thing. But yeah, that's the future. That's the future, dude. Final thing: prediction on affirmation, timeline to affirmation of a planet that's producing biological signal? I give it 10 years. If, 10 years. if not Mars itself, right. right in our backyard, I give it 10 years. At the rate at which we're, we're at it, yeah, our lifetime, definitely. Yeah. Um, my son, who's six, when we were talking about this one time, he said, he said oh, Dad, they, have, they already know there is life. And I said, really? How do you know that? And he said, I saw it on my Magic Bus series. Oh. <laughs> so, you know. So he's the, he got he it first. Knows. Yeah, there's yep. an early, early, early signals yeah. to the runner. <laughs> great. So, Edward, thank you for being on Star Talk. Pleasure. It was great. And uh, next time you do another movie, we'll, we'll totally want to get you back. Great. And only if you, like, really created the movie, not just not just acted it. Yeah, exactly. No, that's I don't need that. Dilettantish. <laughs> So you've been listening to Star Talk, and I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, with my special guest, Edward Norton. And he promised he'll come back for his next movie project. We'll Only if I see receipts from listeners that they <laughs> actually bought tickets to Motherless Brooklyn and went. <laughs> Motherless Brooklyn, another important contribution to film noir, Motherless Brooklyn, starring Edward Norton. So, you've been listening to Star Talk, and I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And as always, I bid you to keep looking up. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.